You're listening to The Purple Principle. And last episode, we analyzed some of the most important insights from season one on understanding polarization. Now I believe algorithms are prejudice. I'm less comfortable having dinner with people from different political backgrounds. It's not really liberal conservative, it's just um, pure hatred of the other party. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And this time on The Purple Principle, not as much analysis, but much more on the hard work of combating polarization. This is not your grandfather's gerrymandering. A very small group of very wealthy people who are influencing our politics. You can't govern a country without a middle. Let's start with the problem of gerrymandering and Trevor Potter's group, the Campaign Legal Center. Trevor Potter might be a familiar name to you. He's a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, as well as general counsel to John McCain's two presidential runs. And let's not forget that he also advised Stephen Colbert on the formation of his surprisingly serious super PAC. His campaign legal center, or CLC, works to combat that partisan redrawing of legislative districts we not so fondly refer to as gerrymandering. Which is kind of like the fox guarding the chicken coop or maybe residing in the chicken coop with mapping tools. Or maybe residing in the chicken coop with mapping tools, eating only those chickens resembling donkeys or elephants. Okay, that's a little weird and gross, but essentially correct, at least politically speaking. Gerrymandering has been around for centuries. Both parties have used it to their advantage. With that in mind, let's hear from Trevor Potter on gerrymandering in our highly partisan age. Well, gerrymandering is a real problem because whichever party is in power when the districts are drawn, which is every 10 years after our census, that party draws lines in a way that maximizes their number of seats, either in the legislature or in the congressional delegation. They do that by packing as many members of the supporters, voters of the other party into the smallest number of districts that they can. So that party wins those districts overwhelmingly, but then the party in power wins a lot more districts than it normally would if voters were evenly spread out. And that's where the partisanship comes in. Now, in terms of polarization, it means that people are in districts that are safe for their party. So the only challenge they're going to get is in a party primary. And what tends to happen in both the Democratic and Republican parties is that the energy comes from the base, from the more active members of the party who are the ones likely to vote in primaries. And generally, they tend to be on the more extreme side of their party. So it makes it much harder to have any sort of moderate compromises in the middle because members of the legislature or members of the House are concerned about getting challenged if they try to reach out to the other side. And right now, Emily, a whole lot of gerrymandering going on in state legislatures around the country that'll have a huge effect in 2022. Definitely. And currently, Republicans fully control 23 state houses and Democrats only 15. So by gerrymandering alone, without any citizen voting any differently in 2022 than in 2020, the U.S. House could flip next election. 
Trevor Potter explains why gerrymandering is especially effective after a new census is taken every 10 years, as in right now with the 2020 census results. The census maps and the demographic material is so precise that somebody drawing a map knows literally which houses on the block have one registered Republican or two registered Republicans, and the same, obviously, for Democrats. So somebody drawing these lines can very precisely measure based on party registration and all the other demographic data that's available They can literally slice and dice through a district and be quite precise in terms of how many members of which party they're putting in these districts. So as they say, this is not your your father's or grandfather's gerrymandering. One way to combat gerrymandering is through independent commissions, which are normally created by ballot initiatives. And these less partisan groups take the power to redraw electoral maps away from the state legislatures. We asked Trevor Potter about two recent 2020 ballot measures, one where the state of Virginia created a commission, but another where the state of Missouri rescinded one. So both of these, Virginia and Missouri, are good examples of how difficult it is to overcome partisanship. And I think the lesson from that is that when voters are told that what they're voting on will make the system less partisan, they are in favor of it. And in that sense, redistricting commissions have not lost anywhere in the country when voters have actually had a chance to pass them. So that leads to Missouri. And what happened there is there was an initiative two years ago to have an independent commission, and it passed, as they tend to across the country. And the Republican legislature did not like it because it was going to take power away from them to draw these lines in 2021. So they did something very clever, which is they came up with a initiative of their own. And what it claimed is that it would improve the independent commission. Now, in the details, it significantly weakened it. It gave the legislature the right to override it. It essentially gutted the independent commission that the voters had approved. It has to be discouraging when an independent commission is established but then repealed. We wondered if that shifted CLC priorities going forward. Well, one of them, despite it not being an easy task, is still going to be the redistricting next year because we do think there are opportunities in a number of states to argue that a gerrymander, if that's what the legislature does, violates that state constitution. There are some states that do not have independent commissions yet, but there is a way for citizens to put initiatives on the ballot. And we will be working in those states with local groups to help word those propositions and then inevitably defend them in court. That was Trevor Potter, founder of the Campaign Legal Center, speaking to the Purple Principle about gerrymandering, a huge factor in why elections, especially primary elections, are so polarizing. And if there's one big message that we've heard from all kinds of experts in season one, it's the central role that primary elections play in our polarization. Consider the U.S. House. Right now, only one quarter of the general elections for the U.S. House are competitive. 
And that means that three quarters of these seats are really decided in the primaries. But independent or unaffiliated voters are unable to vote in primary elections in about half of our states, which has a whopping polarizing effect. That's because many independents prefer pragmatists over ideologues and more frequently split their tickets. John Opdyke leads a group working to fully enfranchise independent voters in primary elections throughout the country. We spoke to him about the mission at that nonprofit, Open Primaries. We think that the primary should belong to the voters and not to the parties. That's their origin. A hundred years ago, part of the progressive movement, primaries were created and fought for and enacted to give ordinary people more power and more say in who the candidates were gonna be. Now they're seen as the process of a party, which is a private organization, choosing its nominee. That's how most people think of primaries. That's how the law defines primaries. What we're saying is actually, these are taxpayer funded elections. Every person, whether they're in a party or not, should be able to vote in them. Independents need to have the same voting rights as uh, Democrats and Republicans. That is a great point, Emily. Why should parties have control over taxpayer-funded primary elections? And why should partisan legislatures have control over redistricting? Exactly. It's madness. And John Opdyke also speaks to the end result of these truly crazy imbalances in our elections and in governance. First of all, it's an issue of voter power. We think that the voters need more power and more say, given the changes in the electorate. It's also... Politicians who get elected in open public primary systems are much better elected officials. They actually are incentivized to work with members of the other party, to reach across the aisle, to build coalitions with people they disagree with, to focus on governing and passing you know, good policy. Candidates that get elected in these closed partisan primaries, they have absolutely no incentive to govern to represent their constituents. Their job is to represent the five to 10% of partisan warriors that get them elected every two years in the primary. That's all they care about. It's not because they're evil people or stupid people. It's that's how the election system is set up. So when you transform the primaries, you go from partisan closed primaries to open public primaries, you empower the voters and you, ironically, you empower politicians to do their job and represent the people. As a general rule, Emily, it's usually the party with electoral advantage that works against opening primaries to independents. Their thinking is they don't need that vote or they fear they won't get it. But sometimes it's both major parties working against the opening of primaries. The biggest takeaway from this is that the biggest thing we learned is that if you're going to take on taking control of the primaries away from the Democratic and Republican parties, you better be ready for a fight. The political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, fight each other tooth and nail. They argue morning, noon, and night. But the second you say to them, you know what, we're going to take away these primaries from you. You're no longer going to control them. All their differences disappear. They join forces in five seconds and put everything they've got into defeating you. Opdyke recalls an open primaries effort in Oregon where both major parties use the same attack ad against the initiative with important differences. Oh, yeah. They filmed a commercial together. And get this, in the, the east of the state, 
East Oregon is very conservative and Republican. They showed that and they said, you know, these people are pushing for open primaries, but really what's going to happen is you're going to end up with two Democrats on the ballot. That's the commercial they ran in the Republican area of the state. The Democrats ran the exact same commercial. They just changed the bad outcome. Same voiceover, same everything, same three-card Monty. But when you turned over the, the cards or the shells, it said the end result is going to be you're going to get two Republicans on the ballot. They ran that in Portland and Eugene. It was devastatingly effective. Unfortunately, the recent open primaries effort in Florida, which did get on the ballot in 2020, came up a little short. It got majority support, as in 57% of the vote, but 60% is the threshold for ballot measures in that state. No one said depolarizing would be easy, but unlike Florida, Alaska was able to pass a ballot initiative creating a unified open primary for all candidates. Like the opening up of primaries, ranked choice voting is another important tool for combating polarization. Maine and now Alaska are the first two states to implement RCV at the state level. And there are some variations in ranked choice voting, but the principle is the same. You no longer pick just your top choice candidate in a crowded primary field where an extreme candidate could win with just 20% of the vote. Instead, you pick your top two or even your top four. If no candidate receives a majority of first-place votes, then the top candidates compete in runoffs based on those second, third, or fourth-place votes until one candidate does receive 50%. And this is really important for legitimacy and democracy. The winning candidate should earn the majority of votes. FairVote is a New York-based nonprofit working to spread the common-sense gospel of RCV, we spoke to Outreach Director Scott Seibel about the philosophy behind ranked choice voting. We need to fix our democracy. Everyone's in big trouble, no matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, or independent. And why is our democracy in trouble? Look at the problems and understanding some of the problems that we're seeing right now in our, in our politics that keeps our government from working is political polarization. Another big problem is that our elected officials aren't really representative of the American people at large. And the last thing is I think the public officials tend to care about their special interests and tend to care about their, you know, a, a narrow group of people, whether it's, you know, Republicans only caring about the people on their far right and the Democrats caring about the people on the far left, they have to care about those people to get elected. So that's a couple of the problems that we see that keep coming up again and again. And, and one of the reasons why we can't actually come together, we can't compromise, we can't pass legislation, we can't do a lot of these things because of those various problems in our democracy. So then how does RCV fit in? Fair vote sees ranked choice voting as a potential solution to a lot of those problems. Now, it's not it's not going to be the end all be all, you know, magic bullet. There is no magic bullet to fix our democracy, but ranked choice voting, various forms of it, different ways of doing it would help solve a lot of those problems. But there's another interesting aspect to ranked choice voting, which is the effect on campaign culture. So what ranked choice voting does is it actually incentivizes 
politicians to broaden their coalition, incentivizes coalition building, and it incentivizes people to say, I may not be your first choice, but I would love to be your second choice. So they bring people in instead of pushing people away. That's a game changer in our incentives of how polarization has you know, taken over our, our politics now. And we tend to demonize the people on the left and demonize the people on the right and demonize our opponents, no matter who they are. With ranked choice voting, that turns it on its head. And we want to have more participation in our government, have more people come out to vote, even if it's for a third party, even if it's for independence. And you ask for that, you bring in those people into the coalition. And that's why ranked choice voting can help bring and divide some of these gaps that we have between whether it's Republican Democrat or between, you know, rich and poor, between, you know, different demographic groups. For example, consider this case of a surprisingly civilized election within the city of Santa Fe. Santa Fe, New Mexico, had their first ranked choice voting election for mayor. And there were six people running for mayor, uh, five or six people running for mayor of Santa Fe. And what the local political reporters found, they were writing story after story about this, is they, there were actually stories that came out and said, why are all these mayoral candidates being so nice to each other? It was such a, we're, we're so used to negative campaigning in this country. We're so used to saying, you know, this person's bad and you disagree with that. And people in Santa Fe seem to like it. Unfortunately, Emily, ranked choice voting had a mixed result in 2020 state ballot initiatives passing in Alaska, but failing in Massachusetts. And the moderate Republican governor there, Charlie Baker, came out against ranked choice voting. And that's somewhat surprising because usually the minority party, such as Republicans in Massachusetts, support electoral changes. We'll have to look further into that, Emily, but there is another really big issue helping to polarize our country, and that is money. Yes, and the numbers are mind-boggling. At least $14 billion spent on the 2020 election cycle. That's nearly twice as much as in 2016, which was twice as much as 2004. And $14 billion is equal to the GDP of a small country like Malta. But a number of groups are working hard to raise awareness and promote legislation regarding transparency and public financing of elections. We spoke with Joan Mandel of Democracy Matters. She's the executive director of this two-decade-old organization, formed with her adopted son and former college and NBA basketball star, Adonal Foyle. Really, it was through conversations with Adonal, because he founded it as much as we did, certainly. And he said that, really, when he was at Colgate, he graduated from Colgate, his friends were all involved in lots of really interesting things. You know, they were tutoring students in high school, they were doing environmental work. They were interested in women's issues. But hardly anybody was thinking about politics. And Adonis said, you know, I really talk to people all the time about how we need to think politically and we need to think about elections if we're really going to change anything. It's great to do volunteer work, but that doesn't really change the world. And it certainly doesn't change the United States very much. So we thought about it for a while, and I had been involved for many years with an organization called Common Cause, which had done a lot around the issue of campaign finance reform. 
And once we talked it through, Adal said, well, I think that'd be a great thing to do is to start college chapters, and later we did high school chapters, of Democracy Matters so that students can influence each other. They can learn how to do grassroots organizing and influence each other to get them to understand that all the specific issues they care about, if you look underneath them, almost all of them are influenced by the role of big money in politics. That is interesting, and it's clearly important to get young people thinking about the whole system and not just some favorite issues. But what about that Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court, which seemed to secure the role of big money in politics? We started in 2000, and the Citizens United decision was 2010. So we had been working for a decade before that decision. But when Citizens United came along, suddenly lots of people got interested in money and politics. There was really an an outrage uh, in the country because it meant that corporations and unions and individuals were able to give unlimited amounts of money, not to candidates. That's an important point. Not directly to their campaigns, but they could spend as much money as they wanted trying to influence the elections by ads or other ways. And so we had really good traction after 2010 because of Citizens United. Based on that increased awareness, we wondered what specific initiatives might make an impact. Really, the only recourse to thinking about how you're going to change the money in politics is to look at direct campaign contributions. And in fact, that money is larger than the super PAC money. So if we could move in the direction of getting public financing, and by the way, since 2010, there have been many victories that we've had in cities and states to institute public financing. It really is the only recourse we have right now, given the Supreme Court decision. So we try to convince people, and it's not been really hard, that public financing is the way to go. And what about the major motivation at Democracy Matters? One definition of of democracy is that every citizen should have an equal opportunity to influence the laws and the policies under which they live. And that clearly is interfered with and harmed by the fact that we now have such a problem about a very small group of very wealthy people who are influencing our politics. So, Emily, a great many things pulling us apart out there. And a lot of groups working on each of these major polarities. But there's also a group working on all the above fronts, as well as the strategy of electing moderates in both parties. Unite America was founded by our first featured guest on the Purple Principle, Charles Whelan. He's a former candidate for Congress and currently a professor of public policy at my alma mater, Dartmouth College. So we have a fund that is investing in two prongs. One is process reforms, ranked choice voting, anti-gerrymandering. Our second prong is supporting candidates. And we are supporting both Democrats in Democratic primaries and moderate Republicans in Republican primaries and paying fastidious attention to the number of races and nature of races so that people don't look at us as closet reds or closet blues. It's a terribly tough line, you know, because one of the things that characterizes this climate is if I don't know what you are, I just assume you're my enemy. 
you know, oh, you're an independent. Oh, you're, you're, you must be a Trump supporter. You're an independent. Oh, you're a Nancy Pelosi lackey. It's, there's so much fear out there that if you're not dressed in my uniform, you got to be with the other guy. Prior to backing moderates from both major parties, Unite America worked to elect independent candidates. We asked how big a shift that was in their mission. The goal hasn't changed. It flows from everything we've talked about, which is to somehow re-empower the political center so we can govern again. I mean, what we've kind of left implied but have not said explicitly is you can't govern a country without a middle. So we would like to re-empower the middle so that you can build coalitions across parties and create more practical and durable solutions. Now, what has changed is the strategy for achieving that. Our initial strategy was to elect independents, which I still think would work if they got in office. I still think that fulcrum of the center would be extremely powerful. The problem, as we discussed, is it's just too hard to elect independents in this climate. So we pivoted after a miserable showing in 2018, where we supported a bunch of independents, they all lost, to supporting moderate Democrats and Republicans in primaries with the hope and the promise from them that they will create a bipartisan governing coalition when they get into office. Which makes sense, except what about the backlash from the more extreme elements in both parties working against the middle? There's certainly going to be backlash from the wingnuts. I mean, that's what they do very well. I think it's incumbent on us to be very clear about what the strategy is and why we're doing it and to be even-handed in the application of that. So we actually count up the number of races where we're supporting Republicans in primaries. Some very conservative people, by the way, but they're in very conservative states. I think one of the things you have to remind people about our system is I've had conversations with someone in New York and I'll say, look, you need to support this Senate candidate in Utah. And the person in New York says, well, you know, he's pro-life, I'm not pro-life. And I say, it's bloody Utah. Like, what do you expect, right? Like he, he should be pro-life. He represents a constituency that's pro-life. So what I'm telling you in New York is he's not gonna represent New York. He's gonna represent Utah in a way that is closer to your views than the other person running in Utah. And I think you gotta get your mind around, first of all, in other places, they have legitimate other views. It's not just red or blue, it's what flavor of red or blue. And you in New York or California may benefit enormously from having a more moderate flavor of red in the chamber and vice versa. So Emily, again, really powerful forces out there pulling the U.S. apart. There's all that lovely gerrymandering. There's our polarizing primaries and the ever-growing campaign finance industry. But there are committed groups and individuals working to combat those polarities and having some success. Maybe the best example there was the recent passage of Alaska Ballot Measure 2. This created open unified primaries, ranked choice voting, and greater finance transparency in our country's most indie-minded state. To learn more about that ballot measure, listen to episode 19 on the Declaration of Independence, Alaska style. And please stay tuned to season two of The Purple Principle, kicking off in March. We'll visit with other important individuals and groups working to depolarize our climate, People like Jillian Youngblood of Civic Genius. This group holds bipartisan citizen panels that point the way towards civilized political discussion and decision-making. And some people will say, it actually changed my mind, which does happen occasionally. More often people will say, I think I still know how I feel, but 
I get it a little bit better. And I think that I could compromise on this issue a little bit. And we'll talk to the noted historian and columnist Julian Zelizer on how former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich paved the way for extreme partisanship and reactionary conservatism. His recent biography on Gingrich is entitled Burning Down the House. A lot of Republicans told Gingrich, this isn't the best idea for your first uh, target. Uh, this is an African-American who's very respected, and you're going to fulfill the idea that the new Southern Republicans are basically backlash politicians playing on the politics of race. But he doesn't care. He moves forward with it. For more information on these and other episodes, visit our website, purpleprinciple.com, where feedback and input is always welcome. Please also share us on social media and review us on Apple Music. This is Robert Pease and Emily Corsetti for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, All Things Audio. Emily Holloway, Research and Outreach. Johnny Dowling, Research Associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. 